thing that makes the average citizen puke and look at the system and say, yeah, you know, what's going on? I don't know anything about this man except I've read bad stuff about him. And uh, I, I don't I don't like, you know, I don't like what I read about him. We are more than just one coin. We create the world around this coin. Come. Invention. Come. Come. In five, four, three, two. The evil has gone. Hello and welcome to Grubstakers. I'm Andy Palmer. Yogi Poliwal. Sean P. McCarthy. Steve Jeffries. And uh, today we are doing another who's who of who doesn't want who to have health care. <laughs> uh, recurring coverage of Joe Biden billionaires. Uh, this week it's Meg Whitman, who has a net worth of uh, $3.7 billion, according to Forbes. And she's, uh, along with being a supporter of Delaware's most famous politician, mm-hmm. uh, she is also most closely tied to Delaware's most famous company, which is eBay. And you may say, wait, no, that's in San Jose. Well, we'll get to that. So uh, <laughs> the um, what's interesting about uh, Meg Whitman, besides being, uh, from what we can tell, just a uh, terrible person to everyone she meets every <laughs> just uh just uh reading about her just she's just mean to every single person she's either being manipulative or outright cruel she's a real battle axe yeah it is interesting uh contrast because usually on this podcast we talk about billionaires who are like generally not violent in their interpersonal day-to-day interactions but they operate structures of wealth that are violent and oppressive whereas in meg whitman we actually have someone who is both yeah <laughs> like she's operating a violent structure and she also shoves her subordinates yeah and uh, her son is a sexual predator she's she's our first billionaire to have paid someone two hundred thousand over assault <laughs> I guess it wasn't technic it, uh, it wasn't technically assault because it didn't uh, it was there wasn't a criminal case, but she did pay a subordinate uh, two hundred thousand dollars because she shoved her. Mm-hmm. Man, I would love to get shoved by Meg. <laughs> <laughs> In addition to being mean spirited, she also has this like air of being a good businesswoman. But we'll get into how that's not true. Yeah, she oh, yeah. she was definitely uh, a very lucky businesswoman. Um, <laughs> then. Uh, Kind of, despite her best efforts, uh, hit it big. And so uh, we can go into her backstory, uh, some bio. She was born on August 4th, 1956. She is 63 years old. Uh, And Yogi, you looked a bit into her family lineage, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, I found a chart from a website that was reproduced from the Family Forest National Treasure Edition, copyright 98. 2009 millisecond publishing company inc this required me to find her mother's maiden name and look her up a family tree of that but this thing is literally a rainbow from meg cushing whitman the billionaire recovering today (laughs) that goes all the way back to the 1700s the late 1600s now let's work our way step by step back this far Because because where we end here is pretty is pretty great. So it begins with and we have some bio on her husband as well that I'll cover. But it begins with Margaret Cushing Meg Whitman and her parents Hendricks Hallett Whitman Jr. and Margaret Cushing Goodhue. And Hendricks Hallett Whitman Jr. is his parents are Hendricks Hallett Whitman Sr. and Adelaide Chatfield Taylor. And in according to this, she hadn't the Adelaide Chatlade hadn't died, or, or I guess that that's when they're married. I'm not sure. And then on her mom's side, Lawrence Cushing Goodhue and Gertrude Monroe Smith. 
Now, there is a Business Insider article that discusses that she grew up on Long Island and her parents are, come from families tied to Boston's elite known as the Boston Brahmins. And mm-hmm. listen, when it comes to cultural appropriation, I... I and that's allowed, your cousins, right? <laughs> <laughs> I can tolerate some things, but the Boston Brahmins, I've already mentioned on the show how I don't trust anyone from Boston. <laughs> Fuck Boston forever. Especially these guys that claim to be Flash Gordons. And where the fucking poly walls were. <laughs> Go socks. The, uh, it's. Hey, sh- I'm wicked and posing a caste system <laughs> over here. <laughs> Go Modi, go Pats. <laughs> but yeah, no, you gotta respect, like, white elites who call themselves the Brahmins. We are the upper uh. caste in this caste system of America. Yo, if I don't have my Duncans here in 15 minutes, <laughs> I'm going to demote you to the warrior cast. <laughs> I like two things. Prime Minister Modi and Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, she was born in Oyster Bay, New York, in an affluent area of Long Island that helped inspire F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. Mm. So if you ever read that book and thought, man, these people are fucking whack, <laughs> uh, that is literally the parents of the billionaire we're covering today. Yeah, this is the first time we're covering the villains in the book The Great Gatsby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But like, so the fucked up thing is, I think we should put in the description of this a link to this family tree that Yogi found, because this thing is huge. Like, Yogi could spend the entire hour going through all the different links, so we might as well just go as far back as possible. Okay, so we have uh, John Otis Taylor married Harriet Ames, 1806 and 1807 to 1896. Right, so we've got some, like, senators from Nova Nova Scotia... uh, elected officials from, but then going all the way back. Yes, on her dad's side, her great 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 grandfather was a part of the Nova Scotia Foundation, which I guess is like a country club in Nova Scotia, I believe. Well, I think one of them was also like in a, a provincial assembly or something. Hmm. Here's the thing: very difficult information to find, but between Bing, Firefox, and Chrome, they couldn't scrub the internet that clean. <laughs> um, but this this chart that I'm looking at right now goes. Let's see. I just want one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine generations back, all the way to someone named Sarah Tudor, mm-hmm. which I think we can all agree is very interesting. Now, uh, I want to congratulate her ancestors on giving birth before being beheaded. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's an interesting timeline because we couldn't find any direct connection to the actual Tudor family, but the timing of it, uh, the uh, mid 17th century or mid 1600s, it corresponds right with the English Civil War. So let's say you're in the lineage of a royal family at the same time that uh, they're beheading Charles the <laughs> first. You might want to hop on a boat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm calling uh, Whitman and her husband's family mammoth money. This money goes <laughs> back to prehistoric days, son. It is uh, wild how deep these pockets go. Some of the colonies in the U.S. were also choosing sides during the English Civil War once word broke, got to them that it broke out. Oh, I'm really? just kind of wondering at, like where Whitman's ancestors fell like mm-hmm. on those battle lines. Hmm. I'm not sure. So that is uh, Meg Whitman's uh, family history. I also looked up her husband, Griffith R. Harsh the Fourth. Now he is married to anybody. The Fourth is already <laughs> like you know. In, if you're in, third plus, like wow. Well, and then their son is 
Griffith R. Harsh the Fifth. Oh, Jesus. And uh, he is the one that we'll uh, talk about later on this episode who's dealt with uh, uh, some sex crimes. It's... It's also so funny. They're like, man, I, I mean, well, I want to give you a different name. The name Griffith is about as good as they get. <laughs> uh, the son, I believe, goes by Griff. So in a handful of articles, he goes by Griff. But Griffith R. Harsh, his parents, uh, Griffith R. Harsh the third, that guy was uh, born ni- January 9th, 1924 in Birmingham, Alabama. Can I just say how appropriate it is that they named a rapist Harsh? <laughs> <laughs> um, this dude... Uh, his obituary is literally like six paragraphs, um, and he was he was like a devout Christian faith was the bedrock of his life. Is the third sentence in this thing? Mm-hmm. He was a mil- in the military service, including medical ar- training in the Army Specialized Training Program during World War II. And another article I found that he was just like an instructor that he didn't like see any combat or anything. But I had to find his parents as well. His dad was Griffith Rutherford Harsh II, mom Mary Smith Harsh, and then their dad. Griffith Rutherford Harsh the first. I found a Alabama Pioneers article about September 30th, 1860 is when Griffith Rutherford Harsh was born. He came from Germany and he settled in Nashville, Davidson County, Tennessee. And this guy was a doctor who eventually became a lawyer and then gave his lawyer his law firm to his son Griffith R. Harsh Jr. who later became associated with their family in his law practice Griffith R. Harsh Jr. served as first lieutenant in the coast artillery spent some time in France in the war zone but for the most part was detailed as an instructor so this family goes back to the 1860s and this is not even the billionaire recovering this is her husband in Griffith Rutherford's uh, Alabama Pioneers article here, it talks about he obtained his education at Franklin College, Tennessee, and the public schools of New York City and Nashville, Tennessee, entered Vanderbilt University in 1880, and graduated from the law department. He was awarded the Founders that Medal super proto-punk. as a best graduate. After graduating, he went west and engaged in various occupations for several years. He was among the first to go into the Coeur d'Alene gold fields in northern Idaho. So he may be a literal grub staker. There's... An argument oh, to be damn. made that this guy is a grub staker. Mm-hmm. By the way, when it comes to uh, owning people over uh, family lineage, there it, it's it is interesting that like my my dad was able to trace back the Palmer family to this like pilgrim named uh, or not uh, Puritan named Walter Palmer, mm-hmm. um, and so like I feel some sort of similarity to like uh, Whitman's background. Sure. At the same time, though, like considering. Uh, her, how she ended up and how I ended up, there was a definite fork somewhere <laughs> over the centuries. You know, during during the first English Civil War, there were some some motherfuckers in the U.S. colonies were so fervent in their defense of the crown that they actually went back. Oh, really? Hmm. Huh. Can you imagine just going out six months? Wild. <laughs> like, journey back home? Yeah. I think it's six weeks. Maybe. Maybe not. Oh, okay. Several months. Total. I mean, from packing up to leaving to oh, showing yeah. up door, you know, door to door. Yeah. yeah. I'm just imagining one of Andy's patrician ancestors in the year 1929 going, no, you see the stocks are going to keep going up. <laughs> we got to go all in right now. Oh, man. In 1929, they were dirt farmers in Kansas. <laughs> so they'd already fucked up by then. Oh, yeah. It was it, it, it had gone off the rails long before that. 
But yes, just talking about the uh, lineage of Meg uh, Whitman's husband, Griffith R. Harsh IV, just on his Wikipedia page, I'm just going to quote it, he's a direct descendant of Revolutionary War General and North Carolina State Senator Griffith Rutherford. Wow. So they, you know, they certainly go back even before the American Civil War. I also, or sorry, the American Revolutionary War. Um, I also found on the that ancestry tree Yogi found, uh, she has a, a an ancestor named Governor Benjamin Miller, uh, who lived from 1672 to 1747. Apparently, he was one of the first three settlers in Middlefield, uh, Connecticut. Really? Uh, but apparently, he wasn't actually a governor. He was just called governor because he had a lot of <laughs> <laughs> he had a lot of influence with local Native Americans. Sure. Which is like, oh, wow. uh, yeah, definitely sign on the dotted line. We'll uh, we'll <laughs> honor that that promise. Governor tier work here. <laughs> but all of that is to say that she traces her money so far back that this is the billionaire we have covered who has the lowest ever Forbes self-made score. Oh, really? What's that? Six out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> the lowest number they have ever awarded for a self-made billionaire. Fucking brilliant. Yeah. She probably descends from people who like told the Romans where Boudicca was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is where she sleeps. Um... So, going into her personal history, uh, she studied math at Princeton and business at Harvard Business School. Mm -hmm. Uh, She originally wanted to study science, but then, uh, I guess, decided that that wasn't for her. Yeah, she kind of said calculus and chemistry were too hard, because she wanted to go and become a doctor like her family lineage. Well, actually, not her family lineage. She just wanted to be a doctor. She got a math degree at Princeton and was like, calculus is too hard. (laughs) The physical sciences are too hard. I guess I'll just do math. <laughs> they're, they're like Classic. Some articles that talk about her being like, I, I took the, in college, I thought that like, oh no, becoming a doctor is going to be all chemistry. So I got to drop out of that mindset now. She ended up marrying a doctor who uh, Griffith uh, the fourth, Marsh the fourth is. Harsh the fourth. God damn. What the fuck is that guy's name? <laughs> it was harsh. It's harsh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marsh would make more sense, yeah, but right harsh now. is funnier. And also true in this case. But yeah, so in 77, she gets a master's degree in business administration from Harvard. And then in uh, 79, she becomes a brand manager at Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. She had to shove so many people to get that job. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, from there, she moved to uh, work at Bain in their San Francisco office. And um, yeah, she married her husband at that time, and he was doing his residency in San Francisco. And so that's why uh, she moved from Cincinnati to San Francisco at that time. This is from the uh, Business Insider article. While a sophomore at Princeton, Whitman met Griffith Harsh Forth. They didn't date until years later after she invited him to her sister's wedding and he forgot and blew her off. He then called to apologize and ask her out. That's a guy who didn't realize who was trying to fuck. And then once he did, he went, uh, hey, so I realize that your lineage goes back to the 1600s. Uh, can I get that puss? But uh, no, I, I actually did just want to back up just really quick. Uh, we were talking about she grew up in, you know, uh, Cold Spring Harbor in uh, New York, mm-hmm. you know, kind of Long Island, great Gatsby fuckers. Just from her Wikipedia, um, she graduated uh, Cold Spring Harbor High School. Uh, and in Did you know, actually, interesting fact, um, the title is ironic. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> Uh, just from her Wikipedia quote, in her memoirs, she said that she was top 10 of her class yeah. of her high school. And I just like <laughs> that quote, in her memoirs, she says it. Not <laughs> not in the records of the high school right. is it said that she was top 10 in her class, just in her fucking memoirs. She's mm-hmm. claiming this now. Like she's, it, it's such weird psychology when it's like you, 
you've been the CEO of eBay. You made your billions, and you still have to be like, I was also top ten in my high school class. Right. Yeah. It's like these people have pathological insecurity. Yeah. Where it's like clearly you trace your fortune back to fucking Revolutionary War procurement. Like something I want to do a future episode on. Uh, I'll only get into it briefly now. But Robert Morris is a, a guy who's commonly called the quote-unquote financier of the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. But there was jokes at the time, the American Revolution financed him because he was kind of the procurement officer. Later, he helped manage the first bank of the United States during the Revolutionary War. Half of all war contracts went to firms linked to him. So that's entirely what happens with these different fortunes where, you know, we talk about her ancestor being or her husband's ancestor being a revolutionary war general and a state senator. Well, it's like these people who are heavily involved in the political elements of revolution and war tend to find the public purse strings ending up in their own pockets. So this is how a lot of these fortunes were built through, you know, piracy and self-dealing. Mm hmm. I guess speaking of piracy, I, her family took a hard turn. In uh, 1989, she became VP of Disney. Oh. Uh, Could be an Epstein connection there. I did Google Meg Whitman Epstein. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unfortunately, just uh, Jennifer Epstein, the reporter, wrote some articles about Meg Whitman, and that's all that turns up initially. Still, still an Epstein connection. Mm -hmm. In uh, 1991, she joined a company called Stride Right. In 1995, she became the CEO of Transworld Delivery. In 1997, she's really jumping around. Uh, she became Hasbro's division general manager, which meant she oversaw Play School and Mr. Potato Head marketing. Yeah, like that's a fucking difficult job. This <laughs> yeah. toy's been around for 40 years. Hey, can you keep selling it in the stores? And she is also uh, apparently responsible for importing Teletubbies from the UK to the US, mm. um, which turned all the millennials gay. <laughs> so... I do like, what if these are all just shoving settlements? She just has to leave every job after two years because <laughs> she can't. 200000 each time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember reading what she did at Stride Line, which was the shoe company she worked at. She worked at the uh, Keds line, which is K-E-A-D-S, and she was in charge of the vintage retro Keds throwback looks. And it's like, <laughs> how hard is a job where you have to remake shoes you made already? We, we've already had these designs for shoes that existed 20 years ago, and we're thinking about bringing them back. Can you handle this? Yes. <laughs> Here's a million dollars. Is that where she was price fixing or am I jumping ahead? No, oh, that was. She was uh, accused of price fixing with um, competitors. Oh, she was fixing yeah. shoe prices? <laughs> yeah. So She worked for a company that was fixing <laughs> shoe prices? You, you fixed shoe prices. <laughs> <laughs> Loaded up. Her timeline goes like this. She's at Procter & Gamble from 79 to 81. Bain & Company from 81 to 89. 89 to 92, she's at Walt Disney. 92 to 95, she's at Stride Right. 95 to 96, she's at Flores Trans World Delivery. And then 97 to 98 is when she's at Hasbro selling Mr. Potato Head. And this is right before she finally gets her job at the company that would make her her billions. eBay. So, eBay uh, is a little company. It was started by a fella named Pierre Omidyar. And if you're wondering how you get that name, it's he's a French-born Iranian-American. Mm hmm and it was uh, originally just a personal website, and on it he this this is also kind of like the origin story. And eBay, I'll get to in a second, has lied about their origin stories, so you can take this with a grain of salt. Sure, um, but he claims that he jokingly sold a laser pointer for fourteen dollars and eighty three cents, and it was a um, it was a broken laser pointer. And when someone bought it, he said that he emailed the person and said. 
uh, don't you know that it's broken? And the guy said, actually, I'm a collector of broken laser pointers. What? Um, also, this guy, Pierre, is worth that $12 billion. We'll get to him in the future because uh, he's definitely one of these uh, uh, believes his own bullshit, pretends to be a hippie uh, Silicon Valley billionaires. From there, he set up a, a little auction marketplace, and it was originally a hobby, but then... Uh, his server or his web provider was like, hey, you have to pay for the business level because there's a lot of traffic on your site. So right. he began charging fees. He said no one uh, complained. And so um, he just started scaling up. It was originally called Auction Web, but uh, he tried to change its name to Echo Bay Technology. Mm. But EchoBay.com was taken by a mining company called Echo Bay Mines. So he shortened it to eBay. Huh. Um, the big origin story that eBay came out with was that it was originally used for him to for Pierre to sell his I'm going to say Pierre cuz I'm not going to try to pronounce that last <laughs> name again. Um it was uh it came out for Pierre to help trade Pez dispensers for his fiance. That's right. Her obsessive collection is what ended up becoming eBay. Yes. And uh that was a lot. That was a lot. Apparently <sighs> the um the they when they were first starting they they tried to sell the um media on the line that ebay was created to form a quote perfect market mm -hmm. and no one gave a shit about that line and so then they came someone came up with the pez dispenser line and what happened with the pez dispenser line is it actually caught on so much that like people who were trying to buy um and sell uh like collector's toys decided to go use that website sure it was a marketing ploy yeah it was a marketing ploy and it was actually a surprisingly successful one and this is all before uh, Whitman came on board, and so it it became very popular uh, with Beanie Babies. Where at one point, ten percent of all sales on eBay were selling Beanie Babies, and that really kind of drove the growth of eBay. Uh, oddly enough, yeah, that show was huge. So speaking of pump and dump scams, <laughs> it was a perfect market. So Meg Whitman comes on in March 1998, and possibly day one, because I looked at the uh, SEC records mm -hmm. um, in March 1998, uh, very same month that she stepped in, they uh, filed to be a company in Delaware. Oh. Yeah. Why they shift over there, Andy? Well, in Delaware, this is from Investopedia. Um, I'd always known Delaware was uh, um, a tax haven, mm -hmm. but it I, I never knew the specifics. But uh, here's some of the benefits of... Uh, putting your uh, corporation where all of the offices are in California <laughs> in Delaware. Uh, corporations in Delaware might not need to disclose who their officers and directors are when they file. Ah. Uh, if a corporation is based in Delaware but does not conduct its operations in Delaware, the state's corporate income tax may not apply. There is no state corporate income tax on goods and services provided by a Delaware corporation operating outside of Delaware, which is just a, like, what? <laughs> like it's a law they put on the books. Like there's no just way purely that, to attract shell operations. Yeah. And it's, there's no way that like you can explain that other than corruption because it's by the way that it's written. It's not going to bring money into Delaware. It's, it's specifically to Delaware. Uh, it's specific. I don't know. It's in India. <laughs> <laughs> it's just specifically to give people a tax haven. Right, of yeah. course. Um, That's where the Brahmins of Boston live. <laughs> <laughs> in Delaware. Delaware. Uh, 
the state does not have a corporate tax on interest or other investment income that mm-hmm. uh, Delaware Holding Company earns. And if a holding corporation owns fixed income investments or equity investments, it isn't taxed on gains on the state level. Right. And so Delaware is basically just the Cayman Islands with shittier weather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, oh, look, where's the fucking senator running for president mm-hmm. from? Uh, whose interest do you think he was representing as the senator from Delaware? This is from the Clown Sec Tech, the eBay effect that was released in 2005. This is uh, Meg Whitman's introduction to eBay, which we've covered a little bit, but this is her from her own mouth, if you will. Quickly grown beyond Omidyar's ability to manage it. <laughs> Enter Meg Whitman, a Harvard MBA who was running marketing for Hasbro's Mr. Potato Head and Play School products. She had first declined to interview at a fledgling.com she'd never heard of. And even when she decided to visit eBay, Whitman didn't exactly have high expectations. I was really happy to see a receptionist when I showed up. We just hired a receptionist because we thought it'd be a nice idea to have a receptionist when we had CEO candidates come in. So basically, she didn't even fucking think the company was worth looking at. And this is the company that would make her her billions. Yeah. I was just going to say, it's interesting to me where you you just heard in that clip there talking about the company grew beyond Pierre's ability to manage it. And you always hear that with, you know, these dot-com startups or, you know, whatever tech company. Uh, they grow. The founder ne- bring, needs to bring in a professional CEO to yep. run the thing. But it seems like with Meg Whitman, it was just like they just picked somebody who, oh, she's married to a guy named the Fourth and traces her lineage back to the fucking uh, royalists in the English Civil War or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Because it really seems to me like she did absolutely nothing for this company. They just picked, you know, a CEO with the pedigree. You know, maybe she had lobbying connections or some shit. She did. But uh, but it seems like all of the decisions she actually made were a disaster, and she just got to cash the billion-dollar check. Well, she seemed to have some—one of the first things she did going in is she um, got Goldman Sachs involved to mm. uh, take the company public. And I don't know—I couldn't find details on whether, like, Goldman Sachs made them some large loans to expand rapidly, but uh, as soon as she got there, she had stock options of about $0.07 cents per share— and uh, as soon as they went public, she apparently made $57.3 million selling 685 shares, which came out to about eighty three sixty five a share. And Damn. Um, mm-hmm. Which is especially weird because um, if you look at eBay's IPO, mm-hmm. in the first, when it first goes on the market, it's $0.79, cents, which is already like a... Um, uh, tenfold increase in the value of her shares. Right. But it's never ever in the history of eBay stock been as high as 8365. One of our sources even said that she was able to sell the share some of her shares at $170. I, I couldn't find anything backing mm. that up. Um the highest publicly traded price we found on the New York Stock Exchange was about $42. Yeah, and that was recent. Like and during her time its highest was about 35. It, yeah, exactly. And it is now. It is common for insiders. There, are, there are ways for insiders to legally publicly trade stuff. Right, and they have to like meet a tight window of when everyone can see that they're trading. Yada yada. But there are also other private markets that I, I think we mentioned like briefly in a few other episodes. Like, uh, I think during the Jim Sim- Jim Simons episode, it came up or something. Sure. Uh, they're what called black pools. Was it gonna be black? 
No, wait, no. They're called dark pools. Sorry. Thank you. It's, it's so much funnier when it's not being done to me. <laughs> dark. They're what called dark pools. I know what they that mean. That insiders, we all know what it really means. <laughs> that where insiders uh, can safely trade large blocks of shares and exercise options in a way that won't, like, quote, spook the market. Gotcha. So, if I mean, if people see a bunch of insiders about to sell something in these public SEC filings, mm. then they can necessarily try to get in on the action themselves. And you might argue that that's fair, hmm. but they can get around that legally using these other go-betweens in private markets that you, you wouldn't see how they're exactly they're structuring these deals. And you can occasionally get like really high premiums uh, on stock on like an all stock deal with someone to like exchange shares, or maybe they're using like um, leverage to get a higher profit. So there are some ways in which she could realize a higher price, but that's still like staggering. And it's also like you, you got to wonder like who's buying that? Who's like using yeah, like, why the, are they buying it? Yeah. Who's using a backroom deal to buy a stock that's like 10 to 20 times what it's trading on the market. Right. Yeah. So like, what was the purpose of this trade? Yeah. Is well, there some kind of transaction like with another company that's going on like a exchange of ownership. Yeah. Essentially mm-hmm. like what's happening. Well, we should briefly revisit the dot-com bubble of the 90s. I know we've talked about it a lot on this podcast, but it will bring us to the next thing where, you know, if she did something, then I guess it is these connections with Goldman Sachs. Because, you know, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, all the other New York investment banks were, of course, sued by then-Attorney General uh, Elliot Spitzer of New York uh, after the dot-com crash because what they were doing was they were sending their analysts out, their quote-unquote unbiased analysts, to go out and tell the public people on, you know, business networks, hey, buy this stock. This stock has a buy rating, which of course is the stock they're IPOing, or you know they have somebody on the board of another company they're IPOing who wants this stock to go up. You know, so they're like going out and pumping these stocks in many cases that had no way whatsoever to make money. And then another part of this that was part of the Elliott Spitzer settlement is a practice called spinning, which is very clearly, I mean, we know Meg Whitman was engaged in it here, which is legalized bribery. It's not illegal anymore, but it was at the time. Yes. So when I was looking into uh, Meg Whitman's um, tenure at eBay, I couldn't find any major crime. Shut up, Meg. There was no, like, one big crime, but there were several, like, let's say half crimes. And uh, the uh, spinning, or I guess flipping is another term for what they were doing. Um, Pushing someone could be a crime. That could be a crime. I mean, she never went to jail. I'll put it that way. Um, The uh, spinning thing, uh, the way that worked out was uh, Goldman Sachs invited Meg along with uh, Pierre and another eBay executive to uh, buy shares in numerous startups that Goldman represented. And then the uh, the three of them would sell the shares, in some cases within hours or days of the IPO. What? For a profit of $3 million. So literal pump and dump. Yeah. Um, and so what, what made it, I guess, especially scandalous um, was that it was, the deal was made for senior executives uh, and not... Uh, all shareholders of eBay. And part of what was going on here was that at the same time, May Whitman was uh, on the board at Goldman Sachs. So she had like an insider track to Goldman Sachs. And the um, they, they did this spinning from 1999 until 2001. And then in 2002, it was made illegal and they stopped. Mm-hmm. And so uh, right on the edge there. Um, so then another thing that maybe... 
the degree to which it was a, a, a full crime isn't necessarily clear, but kind of in the half crime range uh, was what their dealings with PayPal you looked into, Yogi. Yeah, so at eBay, there was a lot of scandals early on. Basically, if you would buy something and the seller wouldn't give it to you, eBay would look at it, but they had to be a referee, which was very new at the time. Uh, incidentally, eBay is one of the first tech companies to implement the have employees that aren't technically employees model that we now see with Lyft and Uber. So this is something that was very profitable at the time because it's literally, how do you make money? Well, a group of people we don't pay make us money, basically. But when it comes to the insurance on purchases itself, were you to make a purchase via PayPal, that it would be insured, but not other payments. So if you paid with a credit card, it wouldn't work. So in this Clown Tech, the eBay Effect uh, documentary, they ask her about it, and she gives, I think, one of the best bullshit answers. eBay also urges buyers to use PayPal, its payment processing system that provides up to $1,000 of insurance. You must, though, have thought about the idea of, all right, we'll just insure everything. Yeah. It must have occurred to you, and you must have decided not to do it. Why? They can have the law of unintended consequences, uh -huh. that if everything is insured, what does that say about what the bad guys can do? The bad what? guys could also be buyers <laughs> and say, you know, and actually be on both ends of those sides of that transaction. So there, can, there could actually be a situation where if you insure everything, actually you increase the total fraud on the site. When the eBay effect continues. What? So yeah. the... So you want to prevent people from being criminals uh, unless they're using PayPal as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, it doesn't make any fucking sense. We should just clarify for people who don't know, eBay had bought PayPal. Yes. So they are driving people into PayPal by only insuring PayPal tra transactions. Yes. And PayPal also had a scandal where people that were sex workers were using it to k make sure that they weren't being killed by using cash or other forms of currency. And PayPal would shut down their accounts and then take the money without <laughs> giving it back to the sex workers. But that's for another time. <laughs> so after that, we have something that um, is really just um, uh, actual criminal activity, which is uh, Department of Justice uh, antitrust legislation. Mm. And this happened, uh, the um, actual DOJ lawsuit happened in 2012, but the allegations are that uh, beginning in no later than 2006 and lasting until at least 2009, eBay and Intuit entered into an illegal agreement that restricted their ability to actively recruit employees from the other company, and for some period of time even restricted at least eBay from hiring any employees at Intuit. In 2007, the pact evolved into an agreement that eBay would not recruit Intuit's employees. eBay's recruiting personnel were instructed not to pursue potential applicants that came from Intuit and to throw away such resumes, the department said. Mm -hmm. And it goes on to say the agreement eliminated a significant form of competition to the detriment of affected employees who were likely deprived of the access to better job opportunities and salaries. So another way of putting that is just that um, the, and the, there were, there were lawsuits also involving other companies like Google at the time right. uh, for the same practice, all these Silicon Valley companies, what they were doing is they were agreeing not to hire each other's employees. Yeah. Not poach. So that, yeah. To not poach so that those employees couldn't get a better wage at another company. And so this was just, you know, one of the uh, just a straight up sleazy way of driving down wages and yeah. uh, keeping employees working in shitty working conditions with 
Um, I, I'd say probably the world's worst boss. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it's literally cartelization. Yep. They're forming a cartel to put a uh, price ceiling on wages to the detriment of labor, which, of course, is constantly fucked over in this country. And what's interesting to note, and we'll get back to this when we get into our political career, is that um, this was also being investigated by the Office of the Attorney General of the state of California. Mm-hmm. Um, this investigation, I mean, it, the um, DOJ... Uh, uh, investigation was from 2012, but I'd say that if she got into the governor's mansion in 2010, right, she probably would have had some leverage to, uh, let's say, crush this. <laughs> and and so uh, maybe maybe she wasn't just running for the betterment of California. Oh, so the final thing that uh, <laughs> that eBay really did that stands out during her tenure is uh, they were stealing trade secrets from craigslist and uh the way that they did this is um uh one of the three founders of craigslist not craig was looking to uh cash out go his own way right and so they uh the other two founders uh craig and i think jim um wanted a buyer then to you know buy his part of the company and then help run craigslist sure and so they got a bunch of buyers or a bunch of like people who were interested and this was around 2005. Um, but, and a lot of this is detailed in this uh, article by Mark Ames on the website, pando.com. Hmm. Um, but apparently uh, there were some talks with eBay and they kind of were falling through, but then Meg Whitman um, asked Pierre to kind of smooth talk the guys at Craigslist. Like this was in the emails or this was even in, in her court testimony. She asked them to kind of smooth talk uh, Craigslist so that uh, and cultivate Pierre's image as a uh, just software developer who got lucky with philanthropic interests to kind of appeal right. to. Uh, I, I'm hesitant to say Craigslist's more altruistic um, intentions because those guys are also billionaires, but Craigslist probably not as evil as eBay at this time. Yeah, and, and so once they got someone who was in sorry. Well, Meg Whitman, we've seen this in Billionaires in the past. She became uh, the eBay main dude's mad dog. You need yeah. somebody to bite hands and bark at people when they're calling you out for being bullshit. And Meg Whitman, although she seems like she's just like a you know like friendly, you know suburban white mom that takes her kids to soccer practice, uh, no, this this lady's pushing people. Oh yeah, and we're about to dive into the psychology of Meg Whitman here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> looking into kind of. How what it's like to um, kind of uh, be on the um, uh, the biting end of Meg Whitman. <laughs> uh, as soon as eBay got uh, got in on Craigslist's uh, 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 board, mm-hmm. they started asking for compilations of Craigslist financial data, site metrics data, all the data about uh, you know how how they would develop in a new city. Um, and then they started working on internally uh, a website that they called the Craigslist Killer Kijiji. Oh, really? And they didn't tell the people at eBay this, but they were directly um, just taking their financial information. Like they would ask to go in and like work on Craigslist servers and pull as much data as they could mm-hmm. and bring it back to eBay. And then in uh, 2000. Seven, they actually launched Kijiji, uh, a direct competitor to Craigslist. Wow. 
And uh, the founders of Craigslist started saying, uh, we kind of want to pull out of this. <laughs> and, um, you know, we, we don't we don't really want you here anymore. And uh, someone they started like telling this to the eBay people and the eBay people started saying, hey, you know, I know you want to do this, but you're uh, driving eBay execs, parentheses, especially Meg to distraction. What? And um, then they started telling the the two uh, Craigslist guys that e- eBay's takeover was inevitable and that uh, Craigslist needed to accept their fate, telling uh, Buckmaster, that's Jim Buckmaster, one of the two Craigslist guys, mm-hmm. uh, that he and Newmark were mortal, but eBay was not. And eBay would acquire 100% of Craigslist, whether they took decades and, what? if necessary, over Newmark's and Buckmaster's dead bodies. Hmm. Wow. Uh, Humans die, but the buy it now button is forever. <laughs> this is Whitman? Uh, this is Whitman's surrogate. Um, wow. We'll get to Whitman. Uh, so then uh, Price, who I think was uh, was all, was a Whitman surrogate also, he mm-hmm. warned uh, Jim Buttmaster, one of the Craigslist guys in 2005, to beware of Meg's wrath, saying that there were two Meg <laughs> Whitmans, the, quote, good Meg and, quote, the evil Meg, who could be a monster when she got angry and fu- frustrated. Mm-hmm. And so, and this is like, so this comes out during the California governor's race, uh, when Meg Whitman is of course running for, for governor, this idea that there's a good Meg and an evil Meg. And, you know, they claim that like, oh, we were just trying to like negotiate, you know, the best position, you know, good (laughs) cop, bad cop and all this. But like from everything we know of eBay's internal culture, there was, uh, among employees, she was referred to as Evil Meg, you know, when she was in a bad <laughs> mood. So it's like, this is a fucking psychopath who abuses subordinates all the time and gets the nickname Evil Meg. Yeah, you're the new me! Shut up, Meg. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually, like, uh, the Craigslist guys wrote to eBay and said, hey, uh, we want to get out of this deal. And uh, eBay's... Um, lawyer responded how would jim and craig react if whitman told them to quote go pound sand <laughs> and then they waited then but that wasn't like the official response from ebay right. it wasn't until two weeks later that meg whitman wrote this email this really gets to the heart of meg whitman uh dear jim thanks so much for your note and your kind words for pierre and me needless to say i feel the same way about you craig and the craigslist community in fact, we are so happy with our personal relationship with Craigslist that we could neither imagine doing anything to disturb our personal rapport with you or Craig, nor parting with our shareholding in Craigslist Incorporated <laughs> under any foreseeable circumstances. Quite to the contrary, we would welcome the opportunity to acquire the remainder of Craigslist Incorporated. We do not already own whether you and Craig feel it would be appropriate. In addition, we remain more than willing to provide liquidity to Craigslist Incorporated employee option holders. Given the foregoing long-held and off-communicated sentiment, we are quite surprised that you would suggest any course of action to the contrary, especially given your recent comments to the Times. And this is, quote, Many companies offer classifieds, but since we don't concern ourselves with considerations such as the market share or revenue maximization, we don't think of them as competition. Our focus is providing what users want. If other companies are better positioned, then users should migrate over to that, end quote. In keeping with the comments our culture places on integrity, we have already taken even further steps to completely firewall off the operations related to our Kijiji offering in the U.S. from corporate management of our investment in Craigslist Incorporated. That's a lie. Uh, Hence, more than ever, we feel we should, as we have unfortunately been able to do to date, together leverage the myriad of assets in the global 
eBay Incorporated family to provide the Craigslist community with the best possible user experience. Warmest regards, Meg. And a judge in a Delaware court uh, described that email as Meg telling them to go pound sand. <laughs> Shut up, Meg. <laughs> and then right after that, in, uh, um, in an interview with Port Fortune magazine, uh, Jim at Craigslist said... Uh, these issues are an obvious concern, but our first instinct is to trust eBay. And then internal emails between um, mm -hmm. Whitman and this guy Price, uh, she said that those comments were pretty funny. And then Price yeah. said, I'm glad to read that he trusts us. And Whitman responded, love this smiley face. <laughs> and so basically what they were, I mean, to, uh, they were fucking with them. Yeah, they were fucking with them. And what they were trying to do, I think, was they wanted to put Craigslist out of business by launching a competitor yeah. to drive down the value of Craigslist mm -hmm. and then acquire Craigslist and then have a monopoly on all of Craigslist services, exactly. whether mm -hmm. it's through Craigslist or Kijiji. And so uh, the the at the end of the story, what happened is that Craigslist, um, they watered down the shares that eBay held mm -hmm. um, and then removed them from the board. Good nice. for them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. eBay countersued to get the shares unwatered down and they the media portrayed it as a win for ebay because they got the shares unwatered down sure but they didn't get a seat back on the board ah. um there were a couple other lawsuits uh, that ended eventually with ebay and craigslist uh severing ties and so <laughs> i i think the way that uh meg Whit that i think that email kind of gets to the core of who meg whitman is <laughs> uh and then the love this smiley face uh, mm -hmm. And then uh, just to talk about her business acumen for a second, um, while she was at eBay also, she made the decision to uh, purchase uh, not all of Skype, no, but part of Skype Correct. Uh, for $4.1 <laughs> billion in 2005. This is at the same time that she was trying to strangle Craigslist. And if you look at eBay stock at the time, like as soon as they buy Skype, eBay stock just takes a dive <laughs> and never really recovers until after she leaves. And what the kicker of it, I think Sean, you're going right. to say. Well, the thing is people should understand this eBay for Skype deal because it is one of the funniest deals in business history because essentially they give Skype $4.1 billion and it's described as eBay buying Skype. Right. No, 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 no. <laughs> they are uh, leasing the technology from <laughs> Skype. They don't actually own it. And then Skype will subsequently cancel that lease. Mm -hmm. So it was just, uh, you know, apparently Meg Whitman is against welfare, but uh, not in this case where she <laughs> gave Skype $4.1 billion of eBay shareholder money for no reason whatsoever. Hilarious. And then she uh, gracefully exited in 2007 <laughs> right. on top of the world um so i guess we can now now that we've uh given the ebay story we can talk about her her political aspirations in california just one more thing before we get to the political stuff i did want to mention just that uh, employee shoving incident we should just briefly describe it um because i find this amusing this is in 2007 and people should know that she shoved a subordinate the subordinate's name was young me kim uh, the subordinate was briefing her for an interview she was going to give on the video game Second Life. Oh, she really? was going to, I don't know if any of our listeners or the people in this room played this. I played a bit of it, if you remember back in the day. Yeah, I used to hang out with Drew Carey on Second Life. <laughs> <laughs> you could, like, grief people by getting, like, a gun that shot a cube that made the sound, you're the man now, dog, you're the man now, dog, <laughs> and fill up the entire room, and then people would uh, spam uh, homophobic slurs at you and leave. There was a presidential candidate who apparently... 
uh, bragged about being the first person to set up, I think this is 2008, yeah. a oh, virtual second life yeah. campaign office. And immediately people sent flying penises into <laughs> it. Brilliant. Brilliant. But yes, yeah, so this is like the serious nature where this uh, subordinate, young me Kim, is just trying to tell Meg like, hey, here's, you know, maybe some questions that might be uh, asked in this interview. Here's your stock answers, things to expect. And uh, she gets so angry, she shoves this subordinate and has to pay a $200,000 settlement after a, a lawsuit is threatened. Uh, so... You know, Meg Whitman is definitely a billionaire who takes video games seriously. <laughs> uh, we we can't hold that against her. You know, it's uh, gaming is is a serious uh, serious business. So we're now moving on to her political tenure of running for governor in California. She was questioned about her time at Goldman during a debate, and this was her response. Spinning was made illegal. So do you still believe, as you said in your book, that you did nothing wrong? And was your behavior unethical, yes or no? So here's the facts on Goldman Sachs. I was on the board eight years ago for 15 short months, and I got off because, as Donald Trump says, I fired them. I didn't like the culture, no. I didn't like the management, and I got off. Um, with she regard to IPO shares, <laughs> I did receive IPO shares um, because we had a brokerage account with, uh, with uh, Goldman Sachs. And we did make money on that, about $1.8 million. I did not actually see a conflict of interest here. It was a completely separate account. It had nothing to do with eBay's banking business. So that is the facts on Goldman Sachs. Would you, I'm sorry, Ms. Whitman, just to clarify for Ms. Marinucci's question, you, you do not believe you did anything wrong. I think she asked you yes or no. No, I did okay. not do anything wrong. Uh, Mr. Poisoner, one minute rebuttal. Wow, you really don't get this, Meg. This is a situation where <laughs> you are the CEO of eBay, receiving investment banking services from Goldman Sachs, then you joined the Goldman Sachs board and the compensation committee, then Goldman Sachs started to feed you these sweetheart deals. Not one, not two, but a hundred of them. And you made a fortune, a separate fortune from your eBay fortune, and then until you got caught, you didn't think anything was wrong. The fact is Congress investigated what you did. They called it corrupt. The SEC investigated what you did and immediately declared what you did illegal. And the eBay shareholders investigated what you did, and they sued you, and they sued you for a huge conflict of interest. The only reason why you paid back any of this money is because you had to settle the lawsuit. This campaign really is going to come down to a few things. Judgment, character, ethics, track record, and vision. And the fact is, your judgment was just terrible back then, and you're still not admitting to the fact that you had a huge conflict of interest, you exploited it, and you made millions personally from it. It's just wrong. Thank you, Mr. Poisoner. Rick. What's funny is that, uh, I mean, people can't see this obviously, but in a, it's it makes so much sense that in 2010, uh, California gubernatorial debate would have the setup of a competitive TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah. the the Republican primary debate uh, for governor. To clarify, yeah, because she she ran against Jerry Brown in the general election, and, and that was lost. her Repu Republican opponent there. And it's it's also interesting that she said conflict of interest because while running for governor, um, she still had a lot of Goldman Sachs stock, mm -hmm. and Goldman Sachs was underwriting a bunch of the bonds for California mm -hmm. during their financial crisis in the you know twenty eight to twenty whatever. So while she was on the compensation committee of Goldman Sachs as part of her duties as a board person for Goldman Sachs. Um, she gave bonus increases to the likes of Henry Hank Paulson and also to Lloyd Blankfein. Right. This is when they were, uh, you know, pumping out mortgage-backed securities where like 98-some percent yeah. of the underlying <laughs> right, uh, right. mortgages were straight-up fraud. Yep. 
but yes, and, and you know, it, it is just something where it's like this kind of spinning, you know, like Andy just said, she was invested in like, I, I think Wiki says uh, 21 investment funds managed by Goldman Sachs while she was running for governor of California. She says she's going to divest and all that shit. But, but I mean, it is just fucked up where this is the way the game is played with, with the spinning is Goldman Sachs gives these insiders on different boards of different companies, uh, you know, millions of dollars of easy IPO money at the expense of public shareholders. And then it's like they're paying off all of these board members. So, of course, the board members go to Goldman Sachs when they want an IPO or, you know, they go to Morgan Stanley or whoever's paying their bills. It is just pay to play bribery and it is a corruption of the public markets. But this is just the way the fucking system works. Yeah. Anyway, she lost. (laughs) In that governor campaign, I found from that Business Insider article that she spent nearly $150 million of her own money in the campaign. And I like to believe if Michael Bloomberg is Rosa Parks, Meg Whitman is like Colvin, the teenager that was uh, uh, charged with assault and battery and disorderly conduct and defying the segregation law. And afterwards, everything changed. This is a direct quote from Colvin. I did research on her. My mom and dad got me out of jail, and my dad said, Claudette, you put us in a lot of danger. She recalls, he was worried about repercussions from the KKK, so that night he didn't sleep. He sat in the corner with a shotgun fully loaded all night. Where is that movie, Jordan Peele? That's amazing. But <laughs> similar to Michael Bloomberg spending $500 million and losing. Wait, Jordan Peele doesn't just have to make black movies. That's true, but this would be a great horror film. Oh, yeah. Anyway, all I'm trying to say is that Meg Whitman paved the way for billionaires to lose money on elections. I do want to talk about that uh, briefly because the California governor's race in 2010, Meg Whitman spends 144 million of her own money to lose by like more than 10 points to Jerry Brown. That's right. Though it was close for a minute in the polls, but you know, people I guess say they will use these case studies of money in politics doesn't matter. She spent all this money, she still lost, but it really did kind of pave the way for you know Michael Bloomberg, mm-hmm. uh, like Yogi was saying there. Where I'm just going to quote from uh, Susie Kim and Mother Jones is actually writing up a New York Times story, and the gist of this story is that Meg Whitman paid more than one million dollars. She put it into the film production company of Mike Murphy, a top GOP strategist who was thinking of working with her primary opponent, and then. Months later, he became a senior advisor for the Whitman campaign instead. Uh, She pays him another $665,000 for his six months of work. Um, Quoting from the New York Times, in the months before the deal was closed, um, he'd been thinking about working for uh, his opponent, or for Meg Whitman's opponent, Steve uh, Posner, who you just heard in that uh, clip we played. Uh, He was the state insurance commissioner of California. Um, The timing of the investment and its unusual nature, Miss Whitman lists no other holdings in the world of independent movie production, raised some <laughs> questions about its ultimate purpose. Was it strictly a business decision or part of an effort to ensure that a coveted political strategist did not work for the competition? Or perhaps the way to sweeten a pot so that he would eventually sign on with the right team? So they can just throw money around, which is why you see all these mayors endorsing Bloomberg. When you have a fortune, mm-hmm. you can just bribe people and uh, really subvert the political process. We could also say that Mike Bloomberg paved the way for her to pave the way for Mike Bloomberg because <laughs> he had he'd kind of already been like creating that that system in his in his campaign for mayor where he had no no experience whatsoever, but bought his way into the mm-hmm. into the office. But he won. He won. That's yes. the difference. I think that the one thing I really want to mention here is that Michael Bloomberg losing and spending $500 million is very scary if things don't change in this country because we're now closer to Mark Cuban running for president and spending $3 billion. So, 
So is Ross Perot like Harriet Tubman or some shit uh, <laughs> in this? You know, incidentally, there is a bl- uh, black supporter of Meg Whitman at a 2010 campaign rally, and she says that she was a Democrat her whole life, but then Ross Perot was the first Republican she resonated with, and then Ronald Reagan uh, calling one year the year of the Bible made her Christian uh, values believe in the Republican Party. So Ross Perot does factor into this. I mean, <laughs> wait, Reagan called a year a year of the Bible. I, yeah, I, I believe so. Every I, new I, thing I learn about Reagan. But I mean, I pretty, want. I'm pretty really sure zero to... AD is the year of the Bible. <laughs> I really want to make this clear, though. Billionaires are competitive, and if Bloomberg spent five hundred million to lose, the next person is going to spend a billion to lose. But it gets you, know, you a legitimate shot. Is what it buys you. If if Bloomberg spent four or seven billion, which he could afford, you know, we might be looking at a Bloomberg candidacy right now. Yeah. It's that's the thing that's scariest about political donations from the billionaire elite being uh, uncounted for. I mean, it's it's fucking ludicrous right now. At the same time, if Bloomberg were spending four billion in the way that he was spending the five hundred million. Uh, we could have been looking at really lining our pockets with <laughs> completely unsupervised fake endorsements. Well, I will say that I am looking at getting a job at Meg Whitman's new company, so <laughs> we will talk about that more in a moment. Yeah, we will do ad reads for your political campaign. <laughs> Just read between the lines, people. Well, yeah. So let's go. Let's go to Meg Whitman's current company and then go into her uh, family. Well, well, there's one last thing I want to mention in that from 2011 to I believe 2000. Uh, 17, she was the CEO of Hewlett Packard Company. And uh, HP is a company that makes printers, uh, calculators, and stuff. Yeah, uh, that's TI 84. Never. Hewlett Packard is a company that makes printers and other, other electronic goods. And uh, she came in to a company that was losing revenue because their business and consumer uh, base was tethered together because of years of not separating them. So her entire thing was to separate those two. But it drove the HP stock down 91% when she did that shit. And then after a year or two later, she she left. So she has not done anything revolutionary or innovative in any business. From HP to eBay to Hasbro to Florist, Transworld Delivery to Strideright to Disney to Bain to Procter & Gamble. She has only been a child of the elite and has been coddled her way to continuing to be the elite. Her one innovation was bringing Goldman Sachs into eBay to pump up their IPO. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that could that would have happened. Goldman Sachs don't know yeah. eBay got money. I mean, like they would have figured that out eventually. But you're right. That was that's, her It's innovation. her one success. Yes, mm-hmm. that's true. Yeah, Goldman Sachs was walking into like three guys in a fucking college dorm room who right. had like $10 in revenue and being like, yeah, you want to fucking IPO this for $2 billion? <laughs> Let's go, baby. Uh, we're, we, we, we don't give a shit. And, you know, like this is what when they talk about how smart they are, billionaires or whatever, this is just they are in the networks. Right. If you are in the networks, you can be an abusive dipshit who uh, buys Skype but doesn't actually buy it for 4.1 billion dollars and shove subordinates you're just born into the right family you know the right people you have access to the big pool of money and you cannot fail you can only fail upwards um and and I guess just like a couple things we should mention briefly from the California governor's campaign because it is fascinating that essentially by running for governor she subjected herself to a bunch of press scrutiny she wouldn't get otherwise Uh, So, you know, this is kind of only why we know some of these things about her. Uh, It came out from the Sacramento Bee. She was running for governor, but didn't cast a vote in an election Mm -hmm. until she was 46 years old, (laughs) until 2002. 
uh, just going through that. And uh, she mentions that she was too busy raising her family and supporting her husband to mm-hmm. vote. And like one what? of the <laughs> yeah, that's a direct quote. unassailable. Yeah, she's got like billion, uh, three billion, one billion at the time. Like she just paid maids to raise her husband. And then uh, got into a settle uh, a dispute with one of them um, in September uh, 2010. This is uh, you know the election of course is in November 2010. It's actually kind of a dead heat in the polls at this point. Mm-hmm. But then what happens is that she had hired an undocumented maid, and you see this in politics even has a term nanny gate right. because you know so many rich politicians hire undocumented people to raise their children, clean oh, yeah. their house, do everything. Um, so what happened with her maid? Um, she fired her maid in June 2019 when the maid came to her and asked her for help with her citizenship because she had hired this maid um, back in, I believe, 2002. Uh, and uh, this maid said that she got a, a the maid got a lawyer, uh, Gloria Allred, uh, who's, you know, kind of a famous lawyer. And according to um, the maid's lawyer, Right. The, the maid came to Meg Whitman and said in June 2009 that she wanted help with uh, applying for U.S. citizenship. And then Meg Whitman told her, quote, from now on, you don't know me and I don't know you, unquote. <laughs> so this is, you know, like your maid who's been raising your children, cleaning your house, asks you for help. And you're like, I don't know you. You don't know me. Get the fuck out. Right. Fires her maid. And this is entirely just because she knew for years that she had an undocumented maid, but she also knew it would become a political issue when she ran for governor. So she just terminated and threw this woman out on the streets. And listen, I know some of our listeners might not love uh, Sean McCarthy's comedic takes, but let's get another comedian's take on this uh, Gloria Allred's allegations against Meg Whitman. Well, do you know the story? As you may have heard, Republican candidate Meg Whitman is in trouble for allegedly having an undocumented alien working in her home. And of course, Gloria Allred is representing the undocumented alien. In fact, uh, Gloria Allred called the maid the Rosa Parks of the Latino community. The only problem is Rosa Parks was here legally, okay? I think we kind of forget that. Rosa Parks was here legally. Anyway, Meg Whitman. Jay Leno. Oh, my God. Meg Whitman is fighting the charge that she knew the maid was illegal. In fact, she agreed to take a lie detector. Well, here's what she had to say about Gloria Allred. Take a look at this. Here's what she said. I think the tragedy of this is that Nikki is, I think, being manipulated. I think Nikki probably didn't understand exactly what she'd gotten into with Gloria Allred. Yeah, see, now Nikki is the maid. And, you know, as I look back in the press conference yesterday, I think Gloria Allred was manipulating that maid. You have to look carefully. Take a look. Nikki's number on her card did not match her name. You don't know me. And I it's a bit where you. it's supposed to look like a ventriloquist she dummy is, is operating her mouth. Yeah, and Rosa Parks was here legally because her ancestors were <laughs> chained to a boat. You know, I forgot uh, doing research at 3 a.m. why the Rosa Parks connection was there. This was the reason I mentioned Rosa Parks earlier. <laughs> But yeah, so um, uh, to correct it earlier, she worked as a housekeeper for Meg Whitman from 2000 to 2009. She said initially she was hired to work 15 hours a week for $23 an hour, $23 an hour mm-hmm. but that the family constantly asked her to perform overtime and additional duties without paying her extra time for the overtime or reimbursing her if she's driving the car or you know reimbursing her for any expenses, basically. Um, and then uh, uh, Gloria Allred, her lawyer, says that they knew, at least from 2000, 
2003. So she hires the maid 2000 to 2009. At least from 2003, we know that she knew that she was undocumented because Social Security sent them a letter in 2003 saying that the maid's Social Security number wasn't real. It was a right. fake number. Right. Um, and then they pretended, Meg Whitman and her husband, that they didn't receive this letter. But Gloria Allred produces the letter, which actually has her husband's writing <laughs> a note on it. And then later they had to acknowledge that they ex- they may have received it, but forgot about it. So, I mean, it is just like start to finish bullshit. And, uh, you know, this hurts her with the Latino community in California in particular because, you know, not uh, not so much, of course, employing an undocumented person as just treating them like straight up garbage right. and saying, you don't know me, I don't know you. Yeah. And then settling with this lady for $5,500. That's it? Yes. Uh, th- she she eventually had to settle with the housekeeper for $5,500. And I do like that um, the, the nation uh, or the LA Times tallied this up. Uh, uh, Meg Whitman's campaign spent $144 million, which uh, accounts for $36 for every vote she got in California. Uh, <laughs> the $5,500 she gave her housekeeper amounted to the price of a mere 152 votes. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's wonderful. That's actually hyper-efficient compared to what Bloomberg paid <laughs> for his votes, probably. There was one story where their campaign tweeted out a tweet that said, like, County Sheriff Associate says Whitman 2010 for governor, the SD County Sheriff. So the cops are supporting Whitman 2020 for governor. And the, uh, the hyperlink they did to go to the article actually went to a YouTube video titled K-On Fua Fua Time Base featuring a bespectacled long-haired Japanese man dressing in a pink tutu and thigh-high stockings rocking out on bass guitar in a bedroom. Now, doing a typo is, you know, forgivable, but the tweet was posted at... 4.40 p.m. October 18th, and as this thing was written, noon of October 20th, it's still up. <laughs> so it was up for two days without them even realizing it. <laughs> Yogi played the video, though, and uh, that guy could shred. I mean, Andy, before we recorded, said that that's probably the coolest thing her campaign ever did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so after her run at politics, she decided to get out of that game and get into the Quibi game. And you wonder yourself, what's Quibi? Quibi? I am wondering that to myself. Well, good to know that it's quick bites of captivating entertainment created for mobile by the best talent designed to fit perfectly into any moment of your day. I'm calling it here. This company is going to crash and burn. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Because first of all, the name, and second of all, the idea, and third of all, the people running it. It's like a combination of Vine, TikTok, and CISO all wrapped up into one. (laughs) So, uh... One third of a successful company. (laughs) (laughs) One fourth, I think. (laughs) Basically, what Quibi is, is that they are revolutionizing the game by making content that's suited for your phone. I don't know if that exactly means that the aspect ratio is to your phone, but they have uh, Caitlin Olson Bennett from uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia fame and a few other people sign on to do content for their streaming service. Now, their goal is that, like, you know... Basically, when you make anything that's on a screen, there's like a you know close up, a wide, and you know various panning shots and so on and so forth. With Quibi, all the wide shots will be done on probably decent cameras, but all the close ups will be from cell phones perspective. So they're integrating how people live into media, which is just a fancier way of saying they're making content that sucks and is cheaper. Yeah, it sounds like they're trying to develop the concept that no one wants, which is sitcoms in portrait mode. Yeah, precisely. So it's uh, Meg Whitman for and Jeffrey Katzenberg, and 
they say they're not competing against Netflix, Disney, plus HBO Max, Peacock, or any of the other streaming services that have launched or are launching soon. You've got it all wrong. You're not even asking the right questions. This is a, a perfect example of uh, billionaire elites saying that we're making stuff that you can't even think of right now. And really, it's just they know that people watch trash on their phones, and they're going to make slightly better trash. It's kind of like when you buy organic vegetables, and it's like, why am I paying more for vegetables that aren't poisoned? Why am I paying for you to not put poison on this instead of just never putting poison on any of our vegetables? We should know from Variety, uh, during an all-hands meeting at Quibi, um, Meg Whitman compared journalists to child predators. Oh, yeah. And she said that the way journalists uh, cultivate sources is similar to the way child pre- predators, quote-unquote, <laughs> groom victims. Yeah. And she had to admit to Variety her remarks were, quote-unquote, mostly accurately portrayed. <laughs> and she apologized for comparing journalists to child predators. Yeah. What's so great is she has to make those claims to journalists every time she's in front of them. And she's with Caitlin. Uh, Olsen Bennett and so she Kayla Olsen just has to sit and be like ah, here's the uh, child uh, predators question again and just sit just be like that's my boss on my left I can't literally be myself right now Meg there are reports that you compared journalists to sexual predators yeah. is that were those comments accurately portrayed and and if so do you regret them so uh, they were mostly accurately per- portrayed, and I regret it terribly. I am so sorry. I made a terrible mistake. I used an analogy that was inappropriate and just plain wrong. We're never, none of us are ever perfect. I didn't intend it. And it's not at all how I think, how I feel. I've had a long, long history with journalists, and I completely respect what you all do and the important role that you play. So I'm super sorry about it. Well, I mean, and you can just imagine, why does she have to make this comment calling journalists child predators at an all-hands meeting at Quibi? It's because all of the employees know they're on the fucking Titanic, yep. <laughs> and she's telling them, hey, don't go telling journalists that this is all just a giant fucking scam mm-hmm. to IPO this shit. <laughs> also, and- I think your children. <laughs> <laughs> and, and guess what the people who were in at that meeting did immediately after that meeting? <laughs> Told journalists. Yeah, yeah, and that's why we're hearing about it. <laughs> We, we should just mention Quibi, I think, is going to go public in April 2020 right. or not IPO, it's but like you'll, April you'll be able to, to use the service in April. Yeah. So we will see if our predictions that this thing will be a fucking five alarm fire bear out. But uh, most likely, I'm pretty sure they'll hire me. Uh, <laughs> they got two positions in New York open. And I, instead of applying, I'm just going to go to location and be like, I think you guys need no. what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. Try and get in on the Quibi. Money. I'm going to entourage <laughs> Quibi. I'm going to roll it and go, why aren't you guys hiring me for this thing that you're working on currently? And hope I get them on the right moment where you go, yes, you're exactly who we need. You're going to you're going to do the like our parents advice for how to get a job where it's just like, well, knock in and knock yep. on the door. Yep. Ask if they're hiring. Yep. And you know what? They might take me. They don't know what the <laughs> fuck they're doing. Can I just say I already know this is going to fail because I already burn my phone's monthly eight gigabyte limit just looking at Twitter bullshit. <laughs> like, OK, you want to fucking stream high definition videos? I'm already out of data by like the halfway point of the month. Yeah, so good luck with this shit. You're not the demographic. They yeah. want they want 14 uh, year old white girls or old people. That's the market to go for if you want money these days. But that's how Charlize Theron actually got her first manager. She was at a bank, and the bank teller wouldn't cash her check, and then she cussed him out. And a guy behind her in line was manager was like, oh, here's my card. That's Charlize Theron. She's a real monster. <laughs> um, but lastly, going down to I have what? a visual impression of her a monster that <laughs> I feel I'm very frustrated right now. Yeah, I've never seen it, but we'll take a photo of Andy's face and put it on Instagram if he wants us to. Um <laughs> It's very jarring. 
So you may be wondering, okay, so Yogi, obviously Meg Whitman sucks, and her family on both sides, her husband and herself, are mammoth money, which is a term I'd like to populate, which is money that goes back over five generations. But where is this money going? Well, they have two sons, and I want to warn our listeners, we are going to be talking about uh, some sexual abuse scandals in a moment here, as well as uh, one of her sons using racial slurs, Uh, so be warned that that is about to come up. So, they have one son, Griffith Harsh the Fifth. Because, boy, keep that shit going, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Not appropriate. <laughs> so, I'm going to read this entire thing from Gawker. A 22-year-old woman named Valerie Sanchez was riding a bus to Palo Alto's Blue Chalk Cafe on the night of May 26, 2006, when she crossed paths with Griffith Rutherford Harsh Fifth. Meg's oldest, eldest son and a notoriously delinquent sophomore at Princeton at the time. According to a police report filed later that night, Sanchez and her friends had mocked his fraternity and said, fuck you and fuck your fraternity, honestly, Queens, to him before Sanchez <laughs> swiped Griff's baseball cap off his head. The altercation escalated when both parties arrived at Blue Chalk Cafe. According to Valerie's statement to the police, they were inside the bar when Griff pushed her with two open hands on her chest and shoulder area. She fell down and fell her right and felt her right ankle snap. A nearby security guard witnessed the event and corroborated Valerie's version of the events. So, say it how you will. This motherfucker broke a woman's ankle because she said, "Fuck your fraternity." Mm-hmm. He was charged with felony battery. That's right. The next morning, Meg Whitman. This is from the same Gawker article. The next morning, Meg Whitman, Griff's mother, and then the CEO of eBay posted Griff's twenty-five thousand bail with a cashier check, and I brought her son home. Turns out if you take a frat guy and then give him a billion dollar inheritance, it is exactly what you would expect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so nine, co- again, from this same article, and, and we should just shout out the journalist, Maureen O'Connor uh, for Gawker wrote essentially the Meg Whitman's rapist children beat yeah, for Gawker. Seriously. She's written several articles about Meg Whitman's children. And uh, unfortunately, Gawker is uh, now defunct. But, you know, I mean, like these are... People, these, why that happened. Yeah, these people, billionaires and you know politicians or whoever, say their children are not you know fair game or go after me, don't go after my kids. Well, it's like these fucking rapist pieces of shit are going to be the ones inheriting Meg Whitman's money. So it's like these people will be the ones in twenty or thirty years from now who are spending Meg Whitman's Goldman Sachs insider trading fortune, and these people are psychopathic monsters. Just from the uh, the Gawker article Yogi was quoting, uh, nine court dates followed over the next year, but the charges were al- ultimately dismissed, although it's unclear why. Um, and they weren't able to get Meg Whitman to respond to comment. The lawyer who handled the case said he was not authorized to respond to Gawker's questions. But it's like, okay, so nine court dates, charges dismissed, no idea why. Probably because she's a billionaire who peddles a bunch of money around California and national politics. Yeah, of course. Um, but so, and then the even more horrifying story is, again, the same journalist, Maureen O'Connor at Gawker, uh, talks about the rape accusations w- uh, at Princeton, where Griff... Uh, Griff Rutherford Harsh V attended Princeton after uh, Meg, Whitman, uh, Meg Whitman paid $30 million to Princeton to build a building mm-hmm. uh, in her name. So she paid Princeton a $30 million bribe to accept my son into Princeton. Incidentally, at that time, that same son was banned from living on the campus. So while there was $30 million being built for dorms for new future students, her son was literally banned. Right, so he's charged with felony assault for breaking a sorority girl's ankle. Right. 
Um, and then in addition to that, just quoting from uh, the Maureen O'Connor Gawker article, on a spring night in 2006, Griff, then a sophomore, went partying on the street, a boozy row of private undergrad dining clubs. Mm-hmm. Uh, as he would later tell a panel of university disciplinarians, he ran into a, ca- a classmate and went back home with her. They had sex. She awoke the next morning with a black eye, bruised faced, and she told friends had no memories from the previous night. According to multiple sources, one of whom was a dormitory advisor at the time, the girl had told friends Griff Harsh raped her. A friend who spent time with her the following morning spoke to us under condition of anonymity. Quote, she woke up with him on top of her, and then he was like, you need the morning after pill. And she was like, why? What happened? She didn't remember having sex. She didn't remember consenting. She didn't remember any of it. Uh, She did... Go to the. She went to the campus health clinic the next day after the alleged assault. Shortly thereafter, Princeton launched an internal investigation. Uh, her friend told Gawker, quote, she didn't want to press charges because it's Meg Whitman's son. She didn't want to go through that. She didn't go to the police. She didn't get a rape kit. She was, quote, unquote, terrified of the social reproduction of ac- uh, repercussions of accusing such a high-profile student of rape. So again, this is what happens when billionaires have their shitty fucking kids is that this guy can get away with felony assault. He owns the fucking judicial system. Mm-hmm. You can imagine being a fucking kid in college who gets raped by this guy and, you know, feeling like very justifiably so that you have no options. The police are not going to side with you here. And I mean, even if they did side with you, there's... uh you're in for a world of hell from her lawyers, from people sure. that she hires to smear you every which way. So he'll get the best lawyers money can buy. Yeah. And she'll get, I mean, she'll have connections to like call you a whore in the media. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the reality is, is there probably allegedly are some cases where this has happened and it's been hushed up. You know, what Sean and I are reading has been stuff that's even been cleaned up a little bit, but we were able to dig and find some stuff. Um, one thing with her sec- younger son, William Harsh, is he went to a part of the college campus where there's mostly white people, and there was a uh, black music group that had performed that night that were hanging out after the show, and he literally rolls up and he goes, man, what are all the N-words doing here? Just yells it. And so he's <laughs> repeatedly used the N-word several times. Wait, hard R? Yeah, yes. And it's like... It's fucking disgusting that these these people continue to exist without re- any repercussion and live in a world where their mammoth money supports their fucking bullshit habits. Wonder where he learned that language. In a different article, it from the LA Weekly, it talks about uh, William literally just throwing a hissy fit because a softball coach was like, "Hey, you can't be on this field. We're going to use it for softball." And he's like, "Nope, we're using it for rugby." So he grabs like the first base and throws it over the edge, and then grabs the same fucking bullshit mm-hmm. that get you know no consequences for the rich. I wonder where they inherited those kinds of attitudes exactly that make you fucking violently uh, shove people and throw things when you don't get your way. I mean, we know where they got them from. Fucking Meg Whitman. And her cuck of a husband mm. literally condone this behavior and hush it up. And, you know... Alleged cuck of a husband. Alleged <laughs> cuck of a husband. Sure, that's fair. It's not for Nah, that dude's cucking for hard. <laughs> he, he's lazy as shit. But, I mean, it's one of those things where the Whitman lineage allows rape to continue. And who knows what type of crimes against humanity have occurred with their lineage. From the, I mean, her dad, her husband's father... 
as and father and great father and grandfather were all lawyers in Birmingham, Alabama. I wonder if any law cases happened with black people in yeah. 1800s to 1970. I mean, you know, a lot of the stuff on the internet was scrubbed, but we found some of it because billionaires aren't smart. <laughs> they just have enough money to pay people to make things look good. And to close out the Gawker article regarding the uh, the rape accusations, I just wanted to quote a little bit more from it. As we mentioned, she doesn't go to the police for obvious reasons, but Princeton launches an internal investigation. Uh, during the summer of uh, 06, Griff, his accuser, and a handful of other witnesses testified before Princeton's University Committee on Discipline, a panel of about a dozen students, faculty members, and administrators tasked with adjudicating non-academic misconduct. Um, a source gave Gawker Griff's closing statement to this panel. He says, quote, I am deeply sad saddened and upset that Redacted finds herself in this situation where she cannot remember what occurred between us that night. He said he thought she had been sober enough to consent. Right. He attributed her injuries to an accidental fall. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and he also, you know... Talk- oh, an accidental fall. That's happened once before, hasn't it? <laughs> Another person's fucking ankle broke in half because this guy was accidentally falling people. Right. That's, that's not the uh, automatic uh, red flag for <laughs> abuse. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's just like if you have a good enough lawyer, just spam the word accidental fall like it's a fucking Hydokan in Street Fighter. (laughs) It's just your go to move. You will just win every case. Gawker quotes um, the uh, lady who was raped, quotes her friend saying, quote, how somebody would think it was okay to sleep with a girl who is bleeding from her face is beyond me. The friend goes on, I think what happened is wrong. I think the university handled it wrong. I would never fault redact it because I understand. To press charges against a billionaire's son is daunting. She just wants to forget that it happened and move on with her life. And if he wants to say they slept together before, he gets to, unquote. And that's the fucking world we live in. These are the people. And you know what pisses me off? These are the people who are restoring uh, Joe Biden and the Democratic Party to decency. These fucking rapist pieces of shit, rapist enabling pieces of shit are like, we are the decency party. We're going to stop Bernie Sanders, stop the divisiveness. It's like, no, you're paying off your fucking kids rape bills. Yeah. Certainly, Joe. Certainly. Why the fuck is this the predicament we're in right now? It's Mm -hmm. horseshit. And then uh, just from the same article, after graduation, Griff, uh, according to his LinkedIn page, went on to work at the private equity firm Solomir, founded by Tag Romney, uh, Mitt Romney's son. And uh, it just so happens Meg Whitman was heavily involved uh, in the Mitt Romney campaign, both in 2008, 2012. I believe she was a campaign fundraiser, among other uh, titles. So her uh, her kid gets like a make work job at uh, Mitt Romney's kids fake private equity fund, which oddly enough, during the run for governor of California, Meg Whitman's campaign pays about ninety six thousand dollars to this private equity firm. Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem to have any political connection, but maybe she's just using fucking campaign funds to pay her dipshit sunset. Salary. Mammoth money. I wonder if any uh, legislation from Utah is going to be <laughs> beneficial to her in the future. Yeah, most likely. But, you know, I mean, it's just such bullshit where it's like she's a fucking through and through Republican who um, backs Chris Christie in uh, the That's 2016 right. primary right. and then just says, oh, Trump is like bad and I don't like his, you know, rhetoric or some shit. So she becomes a flashback Demo- to that uh, clip Yogi played of her. Explicitly citing Donald Trump. Oh yeah. Well, in, in that clip, <laughs> in a positive way. In that clip, uh, I'll I'll close out the episode with it. 
Yeah, and it's just something where it's, you know, it's dangerous to let these people take over the Democratic Party, and it's certainly, we should never let them pretend that they are the decent people. No, I mean, my family uh, was telling me that they listened to Pod Save America, and it's actually dangerous <laughs> that the uh, Bernie's multiracial coalition is kind of like Trump supporters, and that uh, they don't listen. All I know is I've never trusted Brahmins, and I still don't. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did just want to mention with Meg Whitman, we've talked on this podcast before on how the Warren Buffett, Bill Gates giving pledge is bullshit, mm -hmm. where, you know, the billionaires will pledge to give away half their fortune to right. quote unquote charitable causes. But you look at like a billionaire like Pete Peterson, he gives half his fortune, signs the pledge, he gives it, gives this fortune to reducing the deficit, which basically means cutting social security, cutting welfare, all this shit. So it's like you just say whatever you already want it to fund is charitable causes or people will d will d give it to charter schools oh, yeah. and say, I'm signing the giving pledge and giving money to charter schools. Uh, Meg Whitman in 2010, Warren Buffett asked her to join the giving pledge and uh, she refused. <laughs> she declined to join the giving pledge and pledged to give away half her fortune. Um, but she does fund charter schools. And uh, Forbes only gives her a 3 out of 10 philanthropy score, which Aww. very abysmally low. I wonder why. Yeah, but I like that, like, even this fucking bullshit pledge is too much for her. She wants to keep all the fucking money and give it to her rapist sons. Or well, rapist son and uh, N-word screaming son. <laughs> I don't want to confuse the two. And with that, this has been Grove Stickers. I'm Yogi Poliwal. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Steve Jeffers. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the Patreon side. Vote Bernie. And uh, as a little reward for hanging it out through the uh, last part there, here are the smooth drum moves of Herman's Hermits again. Mm. Second verse, same as the first. supporter Meg Whitman. Thank you, uh, Meg Whitman. Thank you, ma madam. I want to ask you about this, uh, about what is it, what is the key reason that would stop you from voting for Donald Trump? If there was one thing that said, no matter what else changed, this is the thing that would stop me. Well, as you know, as a lifelong Republican, right, voting, um, um, going across party lines to, to vote for Hillary Clinton and be a supporter was a challenge. But I think Donald Trump is a dishonest demagogue. He has exploited our worst fears um, around xenophobia, racism, and he has lowered the level of discourse in this country, which I think is really, really unfortunate. So I'm for Hillary all the way. Well, the, uh, I, I'm asking you, what is the one issue that bugs you? I mean, do you like the fact that he's for, he says he's against trade, he's against TPP, he's against NAFTA? Does that bother you? You know, I actually think it is his character that is the most problematic okay. for me. I think we need to look up to the president of the United States. I think he needs to be a role model or she needs to be a role model for our children. 
and so it really is around the character that I think bothers me the most. Yes, I don't agree with his trade policies. I don't agree with his immigration policies. There's lots I don't agree with, but what I will say is I think it's about the character of the person. What about the fact that over 60% of the American people don't like that, don't trust either Hillary Clinton or Barack, uh, or uh, Donald Trump? We see these numbers every day. You see them. What do you make of them? How do you explain them? Both candidates not being trusted. Yeah, listen, I mean, it's a, it's a very, it's an unprecedented election. I've never seen anything like this in my entire career. But one of these two individuals will be president of the United States. And I think Hillary has the temperament. I think she has the global experience. I think she have, has the economic plan that is going to make the economy work for everybody. And I really like the fact that she is going to pull this country together because we are going to be stronger together. Divided we fall, united we stand. And I think she's going to do a great job after the election when she wins of pulling this country together, which I think is really important. You were backing Chris Christie. Uh, he's gotten involved with this whole Bridgegate problem. You trusted him. Do you trust Hillary, Hillary Clinton and Chris Christie both to this day? Both of them? Well, listen, I was, I was a supporter of Chris Christie. I thought he had done a lot of very good things in his career. I was disappointed around his uh, endorsement of Donald Trump. And obviously, you know, the Bridgegate thing has been problematic. But listen, you know, what I really think that Hillary brings to the party is the economic policy. You know, if the president could only work on one thing, and the president needs to do a lot of things, it would be to fix the economy for average working yeah. people. Which Hillary do you believe? Because of? this is tricky. This is tricky. One last question. We're hearing that yep. Hillary Clinton, thanks to WikiLeaks, has come out for open trade, open borders, free trade in the hemisphere. But publicly, her public position has been, I'm against TPP. I'm questioning NAFTA. Which is she, a free trader or a protectionist? Because we're getting different messages from her. And which do you like? Yeah. Well, listen, I think smart trade deals are important. Listen, it's very important for the economy of the United States to trade with other countries. Isolationism will not be the right answer for, uh, for this country. So we got to do smart trade deals. And I think Hillary's for smart trade deals. But that doesn't say whether she's a free trader or a protectionist. Which is she? Which do you like? Well, you know what? Usually these things aren't black and white, are they, Chris? You know, you're a free trader if yes, the deal is smart. Are. You're against trade. Yes, they are. You're against trade no, no, if, no, uh, no. if the deals are not smart. Meg Whitman, I, with all due respect, you have to be for TP or against it. Are you for TPP? I am for TPP. Yes, I am. Where, where, where's Hillary on TPP? So she's against it. And uh, not that I agree with every single thing that Hillary Clinton But you said Clinton, the most important um, thing is the for? economy. You said the most important issue is the economy, and you disagree with Absolutely. her on her role in the world, economically. So where do you agree with her on economics? So, first of all, I agree on her infrastructure program. We need to rebuild the infrastructure in this country. It not only provides jobs, but it actually creates yeah, the ability for goods too. and services and people to move around this country. The second area is her innovation agenda. We have got to own the next generation of industries in, in the world, whether that's 3D printing or immunotherapy or robotics or artificial intelligence or um, big data and analytics. And we need to make sure that we are the leader in those uh, categories that we create jobs for every kind of American with all kinds of educational backgrounds. And we can do that if we set our mind to it and we decide as a country we want to make sure that we lead in these brand new industries that over time will create a lot of jobs for this country. Thank you so much. It's an honor having you on the show. Meg Whitman tonight uh, from Hewlett Packard.
Hey there, I'm Chris Hayes from MSNBC. Thanks for watching MSNBC on YouTube. If you want to keep up to date with the videos we're putting out, you can click subscribe just below me. If you look at the bottom email, you'll see that uh, Salim Fraha is first forwarding this article to Garrett Price. Do you see that? Yes. And then Garrett Price forwards the article to Meg Whitman. I see that. And Meg Whitman's response is. Objection, Your Honor, unless there's a foundation for him to talk about this or it's being used to refresh recollection. This is documented evidence. You may read it, give it whatever weight you want, but he's not confident to testify about this exchange in the absence of some foundation. I'll get directly to my question. Right. Mr. Buckmaster, did you think it was pretty funny that you trusted eBay? No. Dirty pool, mister. Dirty pool. I didn't ask you about uh, Meg Whitman's sort of reported comments uh, that, that leaked out. Um, did you, uh, were they accurate that she was uh, sort of? Yes, and here's the thing is, is that um, the, the quote uh, was an accurate quote. The, the words that she said are in no way fashion, shape, or form or reflection of what she thinks or feels. And so it was unfortunate choice of words in a, in a moment. She, she uh, recognized that, that it was. I've known her for 35 years. She is a great person of high values. And honestly, I can say to you without a question, holds you and journalists in the highest possible regard. So it's just one of those moments, wrong thing. No, no bad intent. That was a lie. The notorious part of this campaign, in which somebody in your campaign referred to Miss Whitman as a whore. A campaign spokesman then described that as salty language and apologized after a fashion. We've heard no outrage from you about the use of that kind of language, which to many women is the same as calling an African-American the N-word. Have you been in charge of the investigation of your campaign to find out who was uh, responsible for using that phrase? I don't agree with that comparison, number one. Number two, this is a five-week-old private conversation picked up on a cell phone uh, with a garbled transmission, very hard to detect who it is. This is not, a t well, I don't want to get into the term and how it's used, but I will say the campaign apologized promptly, and I affirm that apology tonight. You're repeating it? To Ms. Whitman? Yes, I am. I do. I, I, it's unfortunate. I'm sorry it happened. I apologize, Ms. Whitman. So, Jerry, it's not just me. It's the people of California who deserve better than slurs and personal attacks. That's not what California is about. It is not our better selves. And um, I think people know exactly, I think every Californian, and especially women, know exactly what's going on here. And that is a deeply offensive term to women.